it's good to be with you guys. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9 again, so you can go ahead and turn there if you want. We'll be there in a couple minutes. Um, we're continuing our journey to the cross on the way with Jesus on this Lenten path. Well, having come off a really hard teaching from Jesus, concerning Jesus' death, what Pastor Tommy last week described as the ultimate bad day, uh, Pastor Tommy took us to the ultimate mountaintop, right? The Mount of Transfiguration, that moment where Jesus was illuminated like a light of heaven in robes brighter than even tide could get him. And Jesus stood dead center, right? with the representatives of the law and the prophets on either side, but demonstrating his centrality, his supremacy, the reality that he is the new thing that God is doing, the culmination of God's long story of saving action here in the flesh. Now, as powerful as such a revelation is to bear witness to the revealing of Jesus as Lord, as powerful as that is, what really takes our breath away comes in verse 9 where it says, as they were coming down the mountain. You see, Pastor Tommy reminded us that, that Jesus rejected Peter's frenzied suggestion that they have an extended camp out on the mountain, right? And instead, they journey down to the valley. But he doesn't send them alone, does he? He walks hand in hand with them. Together, they descend the mountain and they journey together again on the way toward the cross, toward the ultimate valley, the valley of the shadow of death. And with this promise, the words that the father had spoken over Jesus, he said, this is my beloved, listen to him. Jesus took those words, tucked them into his heart and walked with assurance into the valley and the dark days ahead. Well, meanwhile, back on the ranch, the other nine disciples have gotten themselves in a bit of a pickle. You see, Peter, James, and John, the three disciples, got to go up with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration, and they had their minds blown by a glowing Jesus on the mountaintop. Pretty fantastic, right? Well, the remaining nine who had to stay at the bottom have gotten themselves mired in a bit of a situation. So Jesus and the chosen trio come back to find the remaining nine disciples surrounded by this really rambunctious and agitated group of people with some scribes thrown in there, the whole bit. Now, we don't know whether the disciples, did they start the shenanigans? Or did the crowd just descend on them when they realized that they were Jesus' disciples? We don't really know. But either way, they are in really deep weeds. So this is what happens when Jesus descends from the transfiguration, and he walks into this. Verse 16, chaos. Jesus asked them, what are you all arguing about? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son. He, are, he has a spirit that makes him unable to speak, and whatever it seizes him, it dashes him down, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. Now, Again, whether the disciples took it upon themselves to go out looking for people in need of healing or whether the crowd just said, hey, Jesus' disciples, let's see if they can help us, we don't know. But either way, they could not perform the healing that was needed. And so the crowd was angry and confused, and the dad is frantic, and the boy is gravely ill. And just a guess here, but the disciples are probably pretty unsettled as well. Like, what have we got ourselves into? It's almost like a bad sitcom dilemma, if it weren't so tragic. Now, any of you guys, child of the 80s, born in the 80s, raised in the 90s, thank you, you see that hand? Uh, so, um, without a doubt, you are familiar with the escapades of the Tanner family from the TV show Full House, 
Yes, oh yes, I see that. And there's a story of a widower dad, for those of you who are like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's a story of this widower dad. He has three little girls and he's trying to raise them after his wife dies, uh, along with these two friends. And I never really understood if they were actual uncles or they were just friends, it was a bit hazy. But anyway, there's these three men trying to raise these three little girls. And the whole show chronicles the growing up of these girls with their first world problems that they face all along the way. For example, DJ, the oldest sister, ties up the phone line by calling her friends for hours at a time. Now, for those of you who have grown up either all your life with either call waiting or have never even had a landline, this requires a bit of an explanation. Back in the day, phones were connected to walls with actual cords and if some now this is i know this is blows your mind if someone was trying to call you and uh the phone was busy they couldn't get through it was radical so say your best friend just has to call you and tell you about this crisis with this guy in english class but your brother is chatting it up with his latest lady friend you know what your friend is going to hear on the other end of that line do you know what it is Beep, 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 beep. Now, you have not known aggravation or desperation until you have heard the beep, beep, beep for like an hour at a time. It's basically the dark ages. It basically, it's pretty much. Well, anyway, on the show, DJ's solution, she's convinced she needs her own landline. And her dad's like, um, no way. If you want that, you have to pay for it yourself, right? Thus ensues the crisis. So young and experienced DJ has no idea what she's doing, takes on a babysitting job for what is perhaps the naughtiest little boy in all of San Francisco. So whilst attacking DJ and her friend Kimmy with water guns in the house, I might add, this kid, dumb kid, sticks his head through the railing of the stairs. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you probably remember this episode. Do you know? Yeah, you do. So so the kid is completely trapped. Now, DJ is like, what, 12, 13? I don't know. She has no clue what to do at all, but she's unwilling to admit she needs help because, oh, she's going to get that phone line, by golly. She will prove that she can do this. So she runs to the kitchen and comes back with a giant tub of margarine. Gross, right? Um, and I'll, you know, let you fill in the blanks. Ultimately, she finds herself in deep weeds with this screaming, buttered child and no way to amend the situation. So finally, after creating this huge mess with no solution in sight, she has to acknowledge her inadequacy. So she calls her dad and he comes, gets her to the rescue and they have a really heartwarming chat with like music playing in the background. Like, DJ, you know you can talk to me about anything, right? And finally, the problem's resolved, and the kid just has to use, like, really strong shampoo. It's heartwarming. Now, so, too, with the disciples. Now, there's no margarine in our scene, to be sure, but I imagine them in a very similar circumstance, in a situation that is way above their pay grade. They have no idea what to do. This situation is so dire, and it's way more serious than a kid with his head stuck in the rails. Like, this is a life-or-death thing. A child whose life is being destroyed by evil at work in the body. Now, the disciples are powerless, they are clueless, they're ill-equipped, and they're afraid. But, <laughs> frankly, I don't imagine that stopped them from trying. Like, hey, lay your hands on them, see if it works. Or, didn't Jesus do something with mud once? Let's try that. 
But the one thing you don't hear them say is, help, Jesus. We are out of our league. Now contrast that with the dad in the story, the father of that sick little boy. He is frantic. He is terrified. He is heartbroken for this little child. And So starting in verse 21, it says, Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you're able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you're able, all things can be done for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cries out, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. That is an honest prayer birthed from a desperate heart, is it not? Such a different response than the disciples. This dad had no problem, no qualms at all about admitting that he was indeed way over his head, way beyond a place where he could offer any meaningful solution. Now, we'll come back to him in a second, but Jesus promptly heals the little boy, and he sees the crowds all coming. He's like, all right, we got to go. So he takes his disciples, and they are back on the way, back on the journey to the cross, during which Jesus still needs to teach his disciples the most important of lessons. So let's read together, uh, starting in verse 30. It says this. They went on from there, and they passed through Galilee. He didn't want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying. They were afraid to ask him. Sounds vaguely familiar. Same song, second verse, right? It's the exact same thing that we heard in chapter 8 just a couple weeks ago, right after Peter's great declaration, oh, you're the Messiah. And now, post-transfiguration, post-healing of this little boy, here it comes again. Jesus saying this crazy stuff, the Son of Man will be betrayed and killed and will be raised to new life. But verse 32 is new. The disciples did not understand, and they were too afraid to ask him. Oh, fear. Fear. It's that low rumble, the thing that undergirds our days, always humming, always buzzing, ready to burst into our consciousness at any time. Fear is complicated in that it is rarely, if ever, just about one thing. You know, for the disciples, people have always said, oh, they were scared to ask him because they didn't want to look foolish. Oh, please. They'd been with him for three years. I am sure they were over it by that point. Because you know they had asked dumb questions before. So the reality is, why are they so afraid about what Jesus is saying and so afraid they can't even ask him? Well, I think partly their fear is rooted in confusion. What's Jesus doing? I don't understand. After three years of healing and miracles and of teaching with power, now he says he's going to die. And imagine for a second that you are Peter, James, and John, uh, and you just came off the mountain. He said, I literally just saw this guy illuminated like a star, and now he's going to be betrayed, handed over, and killed. Awesome. Yeah, that makes no sense. And so their fear is partly rooted in confusion. I don't know what's going on. But I think also their fear is rooted in doubt and uncertainty. You see, betrayal and death, how is that the kingdom of God that you've been preaching about, right? He said that he was the Messiah, and so either he is very wrong about what is coming in Jerusalem, or he's not who he says he is. Or perhaps the Messiah means something much different than I ever thought it did. And so their fear is rooted in confusion and doubt and uncertainty, but perhaps also insecurity. You know, I've given three years of my life to this guy. 
I have left home. I have left my family. I have left my job. I put my reputation on the line to follow this dude. And if he ends up dead like he's describing, I'm done. I have nothing at all. And so like the blind man from Bethsaida, who upon receiving that mud treatment, remember how he couldn't see clearly and all the people walking around looked like trees, the disciples are still mostly blind, stumbling around with their half sight, their vision impeded by doubt and confusion and insecurity. And it's all rooted in fear. Now you've heard it before. The response to fear is fight or flight, right? Those are the typical human and animal reactions to fear. Fight, you duke it out. Or flight, you just run away as quickly as possible. Well, uh, scientists are adding more things to the list of possible responses to fear all the time. Uh, One of which is fight, flight, or freeze. Now, this is like the deer in the headlight response, right? I'm not going to run. I'm not going to fight. I'm going to stand perfectly still and hope danger does not see me. This usually does not work very well for deer. But it has had some success in other venues. (laughs) But there's a fourth response to fear that's getting a little bit more attention these days in both the animal kingdom and the human kingdom, human world, whatever. Fight, flight, freeze, or fluff. Now, this is a real thing. I am so serious. And you have seen it. You just didn't know what to call it. Now, let's see the animals first. Some animals, when threatened by a predator, or creditor, as Josephine calls them, they don't run because they can't escape. They don't fight because they got no weapons. And they don't freeze because they don't have the camo they needed. Instead, they fluff. Like, this is like an owl, I think. And he just gets all fluffy to show him, look how big and scary I am. You should run away. And this is an anteater. Oh, my word. Um, He's trying to look very scary to the photographer. I think he just needs a hug (laughs) is really what I think. But he's saying, oh, I'm so big. And this is my favorite. That's a gecko. He's like, look how big I am. Uh, Dude, I'm so sorry. You are the tiniest thing ever, right? But the point is, is they want to appear as large as possible to make the predator all whatever threatens them so they can seem much bigger and more threatening than they actually are. It's kind of like the poker's bluff of the animal kingdom. Like, I got all aces, buddy. What do you got? And wouldn't you know it, people do that too. Fear creeps in. It threatens us, our status or our position, our self-understanding, our image, our future, and woof! Look how big I am. Look how important I am. Look how valuable I am. Look how much I contribute to the world. Individuals do this. Countries do this. Humankind in generally does this. It's a security mechanism, a response to what threatens us, appear bigger than we are so that we're safe. Now, the disciples were apparently excellent fluffers because in verse 33, we see them responding. Having just heard Jesus say another scary prediction, how Jesus is going to die, and fear just floods their hearts, this is what happens. It says, then they came to Capernaum, verse 33. They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, Jesus asked them, "Uh, so what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way, They had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Fluff. Who's the greatest? They were feeling scared and threatened. They say, oh, well, I'm just so important and so great and so secure, even more than you, Peter, I'm pretty sure. Well, first comes fear, and then comes the fluff. Jockeying for position, for self-preservation, for prestige and station. And then comes the shame-filled silence. Consider their posture for a second. 
They are afraid. They are fluffed up. They are, they are, they are fluffed up with their fear-fueled insecurity. And now they are trapped in their silence because of their unwillingness to acknowledge their doubt, their shortcomings, their confusion, and their shame. And so this fear and this fluffed up response of portraying confident assuredness in the face of paralyzing fear can only result in one posture, the posture that's closed, one that's hidden behind a mask of assurance, arms crossed, closed to genuine interaction. And if not a literal arm cross, then at least in my heart, unwilling to expose my heart and acknowledge, I don't know what's going on and I am really afraid. Contrast that with the father of that little boy. Contrast the disciples' posture of this fear, fluffed up and closed hiddenness with the dad of the little boy who cries out to Jesus in desperation, if you can act, please do something. And when Jesus calls him out on his unbelief, on his fear and his doubt, the dad, he doesn't pretend. He doesn't fluff himself up and pretend to have the solution, and nor does he hide away in shame of his inadequacy, but rather I imagine him how I imagine myself as a mom with little ones in that situation, throwing myself at the feet of Jesus with empty hands outstretched, crying out, I'm believing as best I am able. Help me with my unbelief. And in his fear and his desperation, the father opens himself up to receive, doesn't he? No pride, no deception, just surrender. With his mixed bag, of belief and doubt, he comes to Jesus. It's quite a different posture than the disciples. You see, one man walks away hand in hand with a healed and whole son. Twelve men stand in shamed silence, confused and afraid with nothing but their fluff to keep them together. But Jesus' response is kind, not shaming or belittling them or mocking their pitiful attempts to fluff themselves up and protect themselves from fear and insecurity. But instead, Jesus pulls up a chair. Verse 35, Jesus sat down. He called the 12 and said to them, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and he put it among them. And taking it in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. Gently, but deliberately, Jesus addresses their fear. And brick by brick, he begins to dismantle the wall they have constructed. And he does it with an object lesson, with a child in their midst. Now, let's be clear for a second. In our culture, overall, we highly value and cherish our children, investing vast amounts of resources in their care and in their enrichment, from piano lessons to gymnastics to vitamin gummies each morning, right? Now, children were seen a little differently in the ancient world. In the Roman Empire, children were resources to be managed that could benefit the family, right? And a baby that was born that was weak or handicapped or even, like, annoyingly female uh, would literally could be left on the porch to die. No consequence. Now, in Judaism, like for Jesus and his disciples, children were certainly valued more than that, than the Roman Empire, but it still wasn't like today. There was no organic applesauce pouches for these kids, okay? Children, before they came of age and could actually contribute to the world, were just kind of tolerated, which is not exactly a glowing recommendation, right? 
because they were non-productive, they were helpless, and they were dependent. And on the ladder of life, children were lower than slaves and lower than, dare we say it, women even, because children were empty-handed. They had no illusion of self-sufficiency or power or greatness. They were vulnerable and reliant, and they knew it. And so Jesus takes one of these powerless, voiceless, non-productive little humans and places her right there among the disciples. See this child? This one right here? If you want to be great, you must become the last of all, the servant, the slave. Much like this little child who has no status to claim, no power to whip around, no illusions of fluffing her way to greatness, because you're just attempting to squelch the fear. To become the greatest, you must become the least. It is the ultimate eschatological reversal. It is God flipping over all human expectations and agendas on its head. It's all power structures and attempts to control and determine, flipped over to reveal the true nature of the kingdom of God, a kingdom in which the king himself brings himself low for the sake of the world. So the only way to continue on the way with Jesus, to enter the kingdom, the only way to be free of fear is to become the least, is to recognize one's ultimate insufficiency to save oneself. You see, as Jesus picks up the children from among them and he holds her close to his heart, the message could not be clearer. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The kingdom of God is for the powerless. The kingdom of God is for the utterly dependent. The kingdom of God is for the uncertain. The kingdom of God is for the afraid. The kingdom of God is for the one who is mired in despair. The kingdom of God is for the desperate. The kingdom of God is for the one who is holding the line between belief and unbelief and their arms are getting tired. The kingdom of God is for those who can no longer maintain maintain the illusion of having it all together. But in contrast, The kingdom of God is closed to the proud. The kingdom of God is closed to those who are fluffed up, projecting their own greatness. The kingdom of God is closed to the certain, to the one who has all the answers tied neatly with the bow. The kingdom of God is closed to the secure who have no need of a savior. The kingdom of God is closed to those who would take any other posture than receiving. The kingdom of God is closed to such as these, not because God rejects them, not because God loves them less or is divinely enraged or is annoyed, but because we ourselves, in our posturing and our self-preservation, we have turned our back on the way to freedom and healing. Because the only way out of fear and into the kingdom is to stop. Stop straining Stop striving. Stop hiding. Stop pretending. Stop fluffing yourself up. And instead, learn from that desperate father who approached Jesus in full awareness of his inability to save himself from the hurt and the fear and the brokenness within him and beyond him. And so my question for us today is, 
can we too approach Jesus with our mixed bag of belief and unbelief? Can we lower the front that we insist on keeping up for appearances and acknowledge our need, our need for clarity, our need for direction, our need for understanding, our need for forgiveness, our need for eyes that can see clearly? Can we unclench our hands that grip so tightly to our security mechanisms, the things that we use to protect ourselves? Can we come out from the shadows in full trust of God's gracious reception of our war-weary souls? Can we be honest about our fear and our doubt and our uncertainty and trust us that Jesus will help with our unbelief? See, Jesus extended the invitation to the disciples. He said, give up. Give up clamoring for greatness and become a servant. Give up striving for position and power and instead welcome these small ones, the powerless and the dependent, the ones who don't bring anything to the table. Jesus calls them forward to faith, not to think the right things, not to affirm the right doctrines, not to believe a bullet point list of statements about God. He calls them to faith as movement, movement as the act of welcoming, movement as the act of living into the kingdom of God, those values in which the poor and the powerless have the seat of honor. See, this chapter offers us two postures when we're confronted with our fear and with our uncertainty and with our doubt in the midst of our hurt, and even in the midst of our sin, we can, one, we can take the posture of the disciples who out of their fear and insecurity and their image and their futures fluffed themselves up and sought to be great according to the kingdoms of this world. Or we can take the posture of the dad who had no illusions about his ability to save himself or his child and who in full honesty brought his mixed bag of belief and of doubt and uncertainty, and he shook it all out. He said, it's all I got, God. There's some belief over there in a school bus. There's some doubt and there's some uncertainty, and that's all I got. There is nothing hidden. There is nothing I'm holding back. I pour it all out before you, and I say, I'm in need. Is it enough? Will I stop pretending and instead offer this mixed bag to God with nothing hidden and nothing withheld, trusting that God will meet me there. You see, that first posture of the disciples has no time for the welcoming of the poor and the powerless, including and perhaps especially the poor and powerless in ourselves. I mean, who's got time for that when you're so busy fluffing yourself up, so busy making a name and asserting greatness? But this second posture... It can't help but welcome. You see, our arms are already outstretched. We have already said, God, we don't have it going on. We are open to receive. And when your arms are outstretched, it's all the more easy to welcome, isn't it? For as we have been welcomed just as we are, so too we are called to welcome the other. To welcome the other within ourselves. To accept ourselves as in need of a savior. But also to welcome the other beyond ourselves. Those in our lives who are in such need of a welcome. 
And so by practicing our faith in motion through welcome, not by denying our doubts and fears, but by rather offering them up honestly to God, we will find ourselves on the way with Jesus. It's the only way. Let's pray. God, we receive your word today. You have spoken a good word over us. You have declared that we are welcome, weak and poor and powerless as we are. And Lord, we respond to your welcome with our honesty, that we don't have all that it takes. In fact, we come with a pretty mixed bag of belief and of doubt and of fear and insecurity and pride and confusion. But Lord, we offer it up to you honestly, holding nothing back. And we ask that you will meet us here because we want to be on the way with you. We don't want to hide behind our self-protecting devices, our own way of doing things and being in the world. We want to walk with you. And so we do that by, by offering all we have. And with our arms outstretched, ready to receive what you have for us, may we, in turn, welcome. Welcome the weak as you have welcomed us. And in that act of welcoming, would you transform us to be people who are on the way with you. No longer slaves to fear, but free to walk in the knowledge of our belovedness before you as children of God. Lord, hear our prayer. Amen and amen. Beloved, Christ Church, may you go from this place in the full assurance that you are a child of God, set free from fear, not because you have it all figured out, but because you offer what you have, your mixed bag of fear and doubt up to God, and allow him to take you on the way with him. So now, go in action. Go in peace. You are dismissed.